Well, we're back in uh, the book of Hebrews this morning. We're starting in chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, I would encourage you to open up and to follow along with us in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, chapter 11 ended with this, this great big, um, the, whole, the whole chapter was this great big roll call of people who had faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them were named and they are people that you would recognize. Others were unnamed. Their, their names never made it in the record of scripture and yet they were remembered by God and they were remembered by the author of Hebrews. And, and, and we said a couple weeks ago when we got together that it doesn't matter if anybody remembers your name or if they don't. It doesn't matter if you ever make the history books or if you don't because God sees everything that you're doing. And faith is this, we, we, we compared it to this assembly line where you, you've got some that, that, that help early in the process, some are in the middle of the process, and some are there uh, cranking the engine and rolling it off the assembly line. But every one of those participants are participating in the production of that vehicle. And, and, and what we're going to see today is that, that the writer of Hebrews kind of turns a corner again and, and begins to, to make application to all the things that we've looked at leading up into this point in the book of Hebrews. We said that the book of Hebrews is written to believers. It was believers who had turned by grace through faith to Jesus Christ as their Savior. Uh, they had some in that group that were beginning to, 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 to wrestle with some things and, and, and were considering turning back to Judaism and the practices, and they wanted to hang on to Christianity and yet go back to the familiar practices of Judaism. And, and the writer was reminding them that grace is grace when it's grace alone. But when you add something to grace, it changes it all together. I think we use the illustration of taking a water bottle and saying, man, this is water and, and it's great, but if I took a lemonade pack and poured in there and shook it up, it would no longer be water. It would now be lemonade. It changes when you add to it. And grace is a lot like that. And so the writer of Hebrews is arguing for grace and grace alone, but, but grace is never lived out in isolation. Grace is not just a concept in your head. It impacts the way that you live and it changes why you live and who you live for. And so that's where we're at today is, is saying, okay, so this grace thing is real. I'm called to live by grace. Does that mean I don't do anything? That I just say, okay, I'm saved and, and, and I'm going to be saved. I'm going to live forever in heaven so I don't have to do anything because it's all grace. Is that what grace really is? And the writer of Hebrews is going to say, absolutely not. Grace changes us and therefore it changes what we do and why we do the things that we do. So we want to continue to focus on grace today. We want to do it in the context of how this applies to our life. And, and, and chapter 12 starts with the word that we all love, the word therefore. And it says, okay, so you ask the question, why is it therefore? What are, what are we connecting? And, and what he's doing is he's going from this list of faithful people, and now he's going to say, now it's your turn. Let me tell you how this applies to you. So it's not enough that we just have a list of people we can look to and admire, but it ought to impact the way that we live our lives. It ought to change the way that we do things. And they've given us an example, but you and I are called to live that example out in our lives. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by this cloud. In other words, we're in the midst of this cloud of witnesses. And I, I know that over the years I've read so many different people preach this passage and, and they do a great job with it and they've talked about what it means to be in this cloud of witnesses. Does that mean that people in heaven can look back and see what we're doing? And, and, and Scripture doesn't seem to support that view at all. Uh, it's not that, that you know, we've had the, the picture of an arena and, and all the saints who have come before us are gathered in the arena and they're watching the way that we perform on the field. And, and, and that falls short of, of some things. But I think what he's saying is this, that we are in this cloud. In other words, we've got those who have come before us and those who've come behind us. They will follow behind us. There's those that are beside us. And, and we're in the midst of this great company of believers who have exercised faith. Some of those that have exercised great faith have come before us. But there's also going to be those who come behind us. 
And so we are in the midst, we are in the company of this great group of witnesses, these people who, who, uh, who have, have testified to the sufficiency of God's grace and the goodness of God's grace. And so what he's saying here is this, that you don't live your life in a vacuum. You're not an island. There are those who have come before you and they've given you an example and they've shown you what it means to, to, to walk with Jesus, even through trials. All the stories here in Hebrews 11 were not good. Some of them were sawn in two and they were persecuted and they were, you know, you're like, oh man, some were great and the, the result looks really good. And people were raised from the dead and healed and armies were slain and everything was great. And then you get to that last half of Hebrews 11 and he goes, yeah, but some, they didn't see those kind of results. Last week, Thomas stood and shared his story. And about the fact that, that despite this, this brain tumor that has been found, that he is not bitter and he is not angry and he is not upset with God. And then when Thomas finished, we had another guest that stood up, uh, unprepared, unannounced. I didn't, I'd never met the man in my life. kind of shocked me. And he shared of his same struggle with cancer, but his bitterness and his, angry, uh, his anger toward God, that he's left the church and not been back. And we discussed that in our small group Sunday night. Uh, and they're like, man, did you know that guy was coming up? And I'm like, I'd never met him. <laughs> I didn't have a clue. But guys, and some of you said to me, man, it just, I, I didn't want to take away from what Thomas said. And I said, it didn't take away at all from what Thomas said. If, if anything, it showed us this. We will all encounter trials. It may be cancer. It may be dementia. It may be something else. We're going to encounter a trial. And we have a choice at that point where we're going to go with that. Are we going to run to God, which is what we heard in Thomas' testimony? Or are we going to turn from God, which is what we heard in our other friend's testimony? The, the trials will be different. The, the, the encounters will be different. The persecution will be different. What we encounter in life will be different. But last week laid out for you very clearly... That there's two options that we have when we encounter trials. And so he says, we're in the midst of this great cloud of witnesses. Some of them encountered a, a, a deal. And, and, and the truth is about the ones in Hebrews chapter 11 is they all ran to Jesus. And so look what he says here. We are in the midst of this, this great cloud of witnesses. We are in the company of, of great men and women of God. Many that came before us and many that will come after us. And so what do we do? Let us also... Listen, maybe the most important word in that sentence is the word also. Just like they did, let us also do. What did they do? They kept their eyes upon Jesus. They kept their faith strong. They leaned upon the Lord. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith, he'll say later here in this passage. But here's what he's saying is they encountered a storm. They encountered a trial. They encountered a difficulty. And they held on to God. And because of that, there is a great reward waiting for them. So let us also, in the midst of our own challenges, in the midst of our own storms, in the midst of our own illnesses, let us also do what they did. Well, what did they do? He tells us. Let us also, just like they did, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we got to do what they did. Well, what did they do? They, they laid aside every weight and sin. That's two different things, by the way. 
uh, when, I, when I read this, I, the way I understand it is this. That, that when he says, lay aside every weight, those are things that may not even be sinful in your life. They're just not necessary. I picture my, my dad was a coach, and, and I don't know how many track meets we got to go to, and, and, and you'd be on the, in, in the bleachers or, or wherever we, we were, and, and you watch, and these athletes show up, and, and some of them have ankle weights on, and, and they're trying to strengthen their leg and get them conditioned and get them warmed up. They've got their, their warm-ups on, their, their wind suits on. But when they get out there to run the race, do they run it with the ankle weights? Do they run it with the wind suits on? Do they win it with all that, that stuff that warms them up? No, what do they do? Take all that stuff off, and they get down to the bare necessities. Is there anything wrong with ankle weights? Is there anything wrong with windsuits? Is there anything wrong with that extra equipment that they put on to get their body ready to run? Not at all. It's not sinful. It's just not necessary. And he says, if you and I are going to run the race, there's going to be some things in life that are not sinful, but God says, I want you to set that aside because that's just going to slow you down. That's just going to hold you back. That's just going to keep you from being able to perform at your optimal level. So there's some things that are not sinful, and you won't go to the Bible and it won't say, therefore thou shalt not. But nevertheless, God's going to impress upon your heart that that's something you need to leave behind if you're going to run with me. Did the guys listed in Hebrews chapter 11 have to do some of that? Absolutely. They left their homes, they left their families, they left all kinds of stuff behind. Many of them, as they began this relationship with Jesus, were excommunicated from their families. They were told that they no longer had a place to live or a job to work or any kind of income or any kind of anything. And they said, I'll gladly leave that behind, not because it's sinful, but because I don't want anything to hold me back, to weigh me down. So he says the first thing we need to do is to be willing to lay aside anything that would hold us back. What's in your life that's not sinful, but man, it eats up a lot of your time? It's not sinful, but man, it sure gobbles up your money. And leaves you with nothing left to invest in kingdom work. What, what are those things that are not sinful in and of themselves? They're just not necessary. We waste a lot of time on social media. We waste a lot of time watching television and things that really don't add any value to our life. They may not be sinful, but they take away from time that you could be serving somebody else or time that you could be praying or time that you could be be studying the Word of God. And we go, man, I'd study the Bible more. I just don't have time. Well, how much time do you watch TV each week? You see? That's the kind of stuff he's talking about. These these, these great men and women of faith were, were men and women who were willing to set aside not just the sinful, but set aside the stuff that wasn't sinful. It's just not necessary. It's not beneficial. It doesn't add to your performance. If anything, it may take away from your performance. So what are those things that are in your life that just aren't necessary? And God says, you know what? Let that that go, and you'll be surprised how much time you have for me. Let us lay aside every weight. And then also we've got to lay aside the sin that clings so closely, that trips us up. I get a picture of, 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 of somebody who, who would be in a race, let's say, and, and they're getting ready for the race, and, and they just take their warm-up pants halfway down. <laughs> and, and then they get in the blocks, they take off, and, and it just trips them up. It's just, it's, 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 it's just not there. It's not supposed to be there. Sin will trip us up. And, and, and he says we've got to set aside just the weights and the sin that clings so closely so that we can run this race with endurance, the race that is set 
before us. A good track coach, in fact, a good coach of any sport, is able to look at his athletes, measure them up, figure out where they best fit in the big scheme of things, and then put them in that position and train them to be their best. When a high school student leaves high school and he goes off to a college, the first thing that college coach is going to do is not ask him, what position have you played? But he's going he's to test him out in different places and say, you know what, you may have been the quarterback in high school, but we're going to put you in this position in college because you are geared more for this. You, they may have needed you as quarterback in your high school. I don't need you as a quarterback here. I need you as a wide receiver. Or I need you as a tight end. or I need you in a different position. A coach can evaluate his player and then put him in the place that he will best add to the, the value of the team and, and he will be best fitted to, to succeed in, in his field. And, and so some of the greatest coaches have taken players and, and swapped their positions around and said, this is, this is where you would contribute the best. Well, we have a heavenly father that knows us far better than we know ourselves. Most of us show up in Christianity and go, hey, God, I'd make the great quarterback. I've got the looks, I've got the arm, I've got the speed. I've got it. I would, I would be the guy that can run the show for you. And God looks at us and says, I've got a different idea for what I want to do with you. Oh, but God, look, this is, this is where I would really make the biggest contribution. And God says, no, I, I know you better than you know yourself. And so I, I'm going to take you and I'm going to enter you into this race. I'm going to put you in this position. And, and so what he says here in Hebrews is that we need to run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. The race that God has put us in. There, there, are, there are great runners, some who are sprinters and some who are long distance. Nate, you can run long distance, buddy. The, the longest distance I've ever run is like from the couch to the, to, the, to, the, to the kitchen, you know? And Nate can run around the world and back and, and not even hardly be winded, or at least he used to. I don't know if he can still do that anymore. I, I, that's not me. So God evaluates each of us and sees our gifts and sees what he has in store for us, and he enters us into that race. Now, here's the thing. The race that God has entered Anita in is going to be different than the race God enters me in. Different than the race Charles is in or Norris is in. We are all put in different races. So picture, if you will, we are at a track meet. Okay, And there's all these events that, that the team is going to compete in. And, and, and some will be great at shot put. Some will be good at the javelin. Some will be good at, at pole vaulting. But, but there's different athletes that, are, that have God's designed to do different things. You couldn't get me off the ground in pole vaulting. We'd snap a few poles. But there's others that are just, that's just their thing, man. They, they fly through the sky and... And, and, and so God, as our coach, as our Heavenly Father, looks at us and says, this is the event that you're going to be great at. And he puts us in that event. Now, if he puts me in an event and all I'm doing is looking at the other event that I wish I was in, I'm never going to be good at the event that he placed me in. So what we do sometimes in Christianity is we go, well, well God's put me in this race. I'm a prayer warrior. That's my race. That's what I'm called to do. Oh, by the way, everybody else in the church ought to be as good at it as me. Maybe not. Well, I'm the speaker, the orator, the everybody else ought to be at least. Or I'm a great disciple maker. I'm a great whatever. Don't look at everybody else's race and expect everybody else to stop what they're doing and become just like you. That, that doesn't benefit the kingdom of God. God has made us all different. He's given us all gifts. And we're called here to run with endurance the race that he has placed us in. Now, here's the thing. Do you even know? 
what the race is that God's created you for? Do you know your gifts? Do you, do you know what, what God has put you here to accomplish? Because if you don't know that, how can you train for it? And if you can't train for it, how can you win at it? Some of you have gifts that you've yet to discover. Some of you have gifts that we've yet to discover. Vacation Bible School this year, man, we saw some of you shine in ways that we're going, whoa, I didn't know that person could do that. And some of you shined in ways and you go, I didn't know I could do that. And so we need to begin to explore and ask the Lord, Lord, why do you have me here? What's the gifts that I can contribute to the body of Christ? What's the race that you're putting me in? And once we know the race, then we can begin to prepare for endurance. And and that word endurance is going to be seen over and over and over again in chapter 12. This is not a short sprint that we're called to. God hasn't called you as a Christian just to make this big splash in the water and then the waters go calm. He's put us in a race that we are going to run. Now, here's the deal. When, when you run a race, it, it may be a marathon, and it may be a long-term marathon. And I can remember being at track meets with my dad and, and, and watching these athletes, and, and especially when it came to the relays. And the relays were always the sexy part, right? You got these guys that are going to run together. Some relays were really short. Some were long, but they had a baton, right? And, and I watched these guys. They would get in line, four of them together, because there are always four in a relay. And they would just kind of fake jog, and they'd be jogging. And one of them would holler, stick. And the guy would reach back, and the guy behind him would slap him in the hand with the stick. He would grab the stick, and the guy in front of him would stick, and they'd hand it off. And they had to pass the baton. Guess what? If you didn't pass the baton, you didn't win the race. Didn't matter how fast you were. Didn't matter how sexy you looked. If you didn't pass the baton successfully, then you didn't win the race. That's the way that it is in this Christian faith. We've got those who've come before us who have handed us the baton. And now we're running with the baton, and, and, and it's coming a time for us to hand that baton to our children or our grandchildren or our friend or our neighbor, and, and we holler, stick, and their hand comes back, and we slap the baton in their hand, and they take it, and, and they head to the finish line. Many times in the church, we are fumbling the baton. We're not discipling. We're not helping to, to be ready to pass the baton to the next one. But we are in this race, and we are not running in isolation We are not running alone. We are not running for ourselves. We are in a race that God has put us in, and we are running for our team. It's one thing to have a fast athlete. It's another thing to take home the team prize. You go to a track meet. They keep a record of all these races and all these events, and you get awarded points. And at the end of the day, the team with the most points wins, and they take home the big trophy. That's really what we're after. So he says here what we've got to do is to set aside the weights, lay aside the sin, and we've got to run with endurance. That means we're going to run till the end. Until our number is called and God calls us home, we want to run faithfully to the end. Are there going to be some Charlie horses? Yeah. Are there going to be moments in that race where you just want to give up and you just want to stop and you just want to say... I am tired and I can't go any farther. Absolutely. Every athlete hits those moments. Every Christian has those moments where you're just exhausted. And everything in you wants to quit. What do you do? And how do you overcome that? How do you run the race with endurance that's set before you? Funny you ask. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us. Look here. Verse 2. How do we do it? you got to look to Jesus, 
the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus started this faith walk for you, and Jesus is going to see it through. Philippians chapter 1, it says, He that began the good work in you will see it through to completion. So you've got this coach who's going to stick with you through thick and thin. He's going to be there guiding you through every step of the thing. He's going to prepare you for the race. He's going to coach you before the race. He's going to encourage you during the race. And he's going to be there to reward you and, 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 and be waiting for you there at the finish line when it's all said and done. He, he wants you to run with, with endurance the race that's set before you. And the only way to do that is to look to Jesus. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Would you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? I want to show you a passage there that that talks about how that Paul ran his race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me give you just a second to get there. Paul says this. He says in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And now watch this, re- watch this phrase that keeps coming back. We've got to remember why we're running this race. Listen to what Paul says. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? So that I might win more of them. Why was Paul, what was Paul's purpose of running the race? Himself? No. That I might win more people to Jesus. Watch this. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. What was his purpose? To win more Jews. Now, he's not saying I became a Jew, and I went down and got circumcised, and I went down and committed myself to all those laws. What he's saying is I I entered their world. Excuse me. I entered their world. And I reasoned with them at that level. And I understood them, and and, and I, I met them where they were at. I became like a Jew, thought like a Jew, in order to win the Jews. I can just see Paul walking up to the Jews say, okay, so you're a Jew? Okay. Well, let's talk about Judaism. What's Judaism going to do about this? Where is the grace in Judaism? Where is the gospel in Judaism? And he started where they were, and then he could lead them to Jesus. To those under the law. I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. What was his purpose? Again, to win those under the law. So, I become a servant of all? Why? To win more. I become a Jew? Why? To win more Jews. I, I become like one under the law? Why? To win those under the law. To those outside the law. These are the Gentiles. I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak. I became weak. Why? That I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all, he says. For the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. And then he talks about this race that the writer of Hebrews has mentioned. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now here's what he's doing. He's going to illustrate this race with a comparison and a contrast. Some things he compares and some things he contrasts. He's contrasting this, this, this earthly race that they would have been familiar with. This race where people all get in a line, get in the starting blocks, and they take off and they run. He says there's only one winner in that kind of race. But we're called to run a different kinds of race. He says in, in their race that they all run, but only one receives the prize. Now, I want you to run like that with that same kind of determination, that same kind of drive, that same kind of will. I want you to run as if you were competing against the world in in a sense and and, and that you're going to give it your, your very best in order to achieve the best. 
But there is a difference in the race that the world runs and the race that you and I run. In the world's race, they see it as winners and losers, right? If, if you win, then I lose. And if I win, then you lose. And we all know which one of those two scenarios we like the best, right? Paul says that's not the race, that, that's not the way that, that we run our race. In an athletic event, only one person gets the prize. This idea of participation trophies was not in Paul's vocabulary. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so everybody's going to get the same trophy. Paul would say, bull. In, in, in a worldly race, there's one winner. And I want you to run with that same kind of determination, he says. But, but here's the deal. They, they all run in the worldly race against all others. It's a competition. But for us as believers, we run for all the others. Why did Paul do what he just did? Why did Paul become weak to the weak and a Jew to the Jew and a, 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 a under the law to the under the law? People? Why did Paul do that? He did it not for himself, but he did it for them. So in this worldly race, we run against all others. But in the Christian race, we run for all others. I'm doing what I'm doing in order that more may know Jesus. If we get that reversed, then we just become narcissistic Christians who live for ourselves. And, and I'm trying to store up for myself all these rewards in heaven, and I just live for me, me, me. And that is a selfish desire. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Was it for him? No. It was for us, for others. Why are we called to run the race that we run? Is it just for ourselves? Not at all. Because we are in the midst of a relay. And there are those who have sacrificed everything to get the baton in our hands. And now we are called to do that to get the baton in their hands. And that's what we are called to do is to run that race where, where, where we've been given this great sacred trust. And we are to take it and to hand it to those who come behind us. Now in between those two handoffs, we've got a race to run. And we need to run it with all of our hearts. But, but, but they ran against all others, and yet we run for all others. We are not just running for ourselves, but we are running for something much greater. We run for others. Now watch this. I want you to run hard, he says, so that you may obtain it. Run as if nothing else matters. Every athlete, he says, verse 25, exercises self-control in all things. And they do it in this world to receive a perishable wreath. Back then when you ran in the Olympics and you ran in these races, they would weave together this, this wreath that they would lay on your head, and that was a victor's crown. And a day later, it was wilted and dead. It was a perishable wreath, he says. But we are running as believers for an imperishable reward. So Paul says it changes how I run my race. I do not run aimlessly, but instead I'm running focused. I do not box as one who's beating the air. In other words, you ever seen these boxers who, who you know, they're shooting video of them, they're getting ready for a great big boxing match, and they're out there and they're just you know, fake punching and, and acting like they're doing it, and there ain't no, there's nothing going on there. They're just, they just doing it for the cameras. Paul says, I'm going to do this for the cameras. Everything I do, I do for a reason, and that is that I might lead others to Jesus. But he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. In other words, I watch carefully what I do. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Paul says, I don't want to run the race just to be running a race. I'm, I'm not running for myself, but I'm running for others. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Let me read you this. Paul talks about what, it's, what part of his prize. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. It says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul says, as I run, I run thinking this is going to make a difference in somebody else's life who will then be standing with me before the throne of God. You are my joy. You are my prize. You are my hope. You are my crown of boasting before the Lord. In, in Philippians chapter uh, 4, verse 1, uh, Paul says the same thing again. He's saying to the writers that, that are going to be reading his letters, the, the, the readers who will be reading his letters, he says in chapter 4, verse 1 of Philippians, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, you're my joy and my crown. I want you to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Have you ever thought about this? That, that, that if, if you run this race the way that God's called you to run this race and you successfully hand off the baton, that when it comes time for us to, to, to be placed upon the winner's platform, it's not going to be just you, but it's going to be your team that's with you. Those who've handed you the baton and those who have received the baton from you. And so he says here, back in Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to run this race with endurance. Run it to the very end. Don't stop short. You ever watch these football bloopers where somebody may intercept a pass and they run it back and right before they cross the finish line, right across the goal line, they drop the ball and they don't get any points. I mean, they could have been this far from crossing the goal line, and they just dropped the ball and do their little dance and do their thing in the end zone, and, and there was no score, no touchdown, because they didn't finish the race. They didn't get across the goal line. I think there's some who just give up at the end. They, they die before they stop breathing. Don't be that way. Paul is saying here, God has put you in a race. He has selected the perfect gift, the perfect event, the perfect thing for you to accomplish. And you're on a team. We are all on this team together. And we have been placed in, in the event that God has placed us in. Listen, it, it's, it's not the event of our choosing, but the event of God's choosing. And then he trains us. And he takes us into strict discipline. We're going to look at it next, next time. Not, not next week because I'll be out, but the following week. We'll talk about this discipline that God puts us through to prepare us to be the very best athlete we can be in the event that he has placed us in. Some of us are still mad that we're not in the, a different event. We're mad that, they, that God didn't make me the, the quarterback. And he's, he's called me instead to be the blocking tight end who never gets a pass, never does anything, but makes a contribution to the team. Let's figure out why we're here, what, what our position is, and then let's run this race with endurance. We do it by looking to Jesus. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And then look at this next statement. It's so strange, but it will, it will rock your world if you'll let it. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Does he say Jesus enjoyed the cross? Is that what he's saying? 
No, he said this. He said, look to Jesus, who's our example. What did he do? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy was not in the cross. The joy was what came after the cross. So as Jesus is preparing for the cross, Jesus is looking beyond the cross. Here's the problem. If we don't do that before we get to the cross, the cross seems unbearable. But Jesus went to the cross knowing what was waiting on the other side. His father, the approval of his father, and then every single person who would put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And for that joy, that moment that was yet to come, he was able to endure the cross. When you and I encounter trials and struggles and and tribulations that come our way, if if we get so caught up in the fog right in that moment and all we can see is the trouble and, and, and the problem, and we don't allow the Lord to focus our eyes on what is to come after that, then we'll be over overwhelmed and overcome in those moments. But if my confidence is this, that God is a God who is in control of all things, that God is a God who breathed life into me, and God is a God who will call me home when it's time, if I believe in, in the sovereignty of God, and I believe in this, this God who, who can speak and everything can change if he so desired, and he chooses not to remove me from that situation, then I know this, there's something God's doing that will be far greater on the other side. And I just need to stick with him and trust him. When I, when I can't see what he's doing, I just grab his hand and I hold on. And some of you find yourselves in those situations right now. You're going through a dark moment, you're going through a tough time, and you don't see the hand of God and you don't know what God's doing, and, and you're going, how am I going to get through this moment? You've got to look to Jesus. And you've got to do what Jesus did. You've got to look beyond that and say, Lord, I, I still can't see what that is yet. Jesus may have known it, but I can't see it yet. But I trust in your goodness, and I trust in your grace, and I trust that if I will just stay so focused upon you, that there will be joy on the other side of this thing that the world can't even begin to compare. So he said, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now... He's seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. His race is run. He is now there before the Father, interceding for you and for me, that we might do the same. In our last verse today, he says in verse 3, Consider him who endured from such sinners, or from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Think on him. Meditate upon what Jesus went through. He he endured from sinners, those that he came to save, such hostility, that violent opposition against himself. And we need to remember what he went through for us so that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then I, I lied. That wasn't the last verse. One more verse. This is it. In our struggle against sin... You've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here's what he's saying. When you consider Jesus and you realize how far he went for the joy of having you in heaven with him, you'll realize, 
I hadn't endured anything yet. Thomas, I think you said it best last week. And when Jesus was on that cross and you took your hand and you made that hammer and they were pounding those nails, Jesus was thinking about the joy of having you with him one day. It didn't lessen the pain of that moment, didn't shorten the suffering, but it made it bearable because he knew that if he went through the cross, what was waiting on the other side was far greater. The reward was far greater. So when things get tough, look to Jesus. Not only for your strength and your, your, your supply and your source of faith and all those things you're going to need, but look to Jesus and say, you know what? I haven't gone to the point of dying on the cross for somebody else like Jesus did. And if he could do that, then I can make it through this. I can do this by God's strength and by God's help. This is a passage, guys, that just reminds us so often of who we are and, and how tough life can be. And, and, and Jesus here, for the joy that was before him, endured the cross. And we're called to do the same. And let me take you back and say this, that we are to run this race for this prize that is set before us. Here's your prize. The prize that God has called us to run our race for is not a place. Some people think, oh, the prize is heaven. It's far more than just heaven. The prize is not just a pat on the back. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's awesome, but that's not all of the prize. So it's not a place. It's not even this, this pat on the back. It's not a promotion. Oh, I've done, been faithful with a little, I'll get more. It's a person. The prize is the person of Jesus Christ. We sing a song that says, He is my prize and He is my portion. He is why we do what we do. And He is our prize. And here's the truth. When Jesus is your prize, you can suffer loss and still not lose hope. When Jesus is your prize, you can step into the unknown without fear and with confidence because he is your shepherd and he will lead you through. When Jesus is your prize, you can endure severe trials without giving up. And as we heard last week, when Jesus is your prize, you can face cancer and not be bitter. You can go through the fire and come through it unburned. So let me close with two questions this morning that I can get you to chew on if you would. Who or what do you look to in life? Who, who do you look to to define you? I just got to get this person to like me and then life will be good. I've just got to get this person to say that I'm incredible and then I'll feel good about myself. Who, who are you looking to to define you? Who do you look to to inspire you? It's interesting in this passage. He's just gone through all these people in Hebrews chapter 11, this long list of people. And then he doesn't say, now look to them for your inspiration. Look to them for your example. Who does he say? He says, look to Jesus. 
You see, all these men and women that came before have their own set of problems and their own challenges and their own failures, but not Jesus. So who do you look to to define you, to inspire you? Who do you look to to love you? Who do you look to to motivate you? And who is it that you look to in moments of crisis to sustain you? Here, the writer of Hebrews says, look to Jesus. And the second question is this. What is it that you prize the most? Some people live for the applause and the approval of others. That's their prize. I want to have this image in the community, this toy that everybody wants. I want to have this title, or I want to have this position, or I want to have this wealth. And, and, and that's their prize. That's what they do everything in life for, so that others will look at them and go, whoa. And that's a hollow prize. What's the prize that you are living for? In other words, what do you do? Why do you do what you do? Really, take some time and chew on that. Don't just blow it off and go, oh, okay. Sunday school answer, Jesus, okay, that's good for me. But really ask yourself, why, why am I doing Why am I busting it so hard? What am I seeking after? And, and be honest with yourself. Because we are called to look to Jesus and to prize Jesus, for he is our prize. He is what we live for. And anything less than that is going to be hollow. Anything less than that will be unsatisfying. But he is our portion and he is our prize. And we are drawn to him as our Savior and our Lord. So I'd ask you today, as we conclude this time together, do you know the race that he signed you up for? If he's called you to be the shot putter, don't go get in the starting blocks. Okay? It's not going to turn out good. You're going to get smoked. Okay? Find the race. What are your gifts? What's your calling? What's God's purpose on your life? And it's all got to start there. Because if you don't know that, you'll never enter the race, the right race that God's called you to be. And you'll never be comfortable being the person that God's called you to be. Would you pray with me this morning? And if you don't know that purpose already, would you begin to ask God to reveal that to you so that you can, you can zero in? And then we'll talk next time about how he trains us and prepares us as a loving father to not only endure, but to succeed. Let's pray.